Well, Matt's a hard act to follow. I thought the kids would be a hard act to follow, but um, Matt's on fire tonight. Annie LB, I kept looking at you, and uh, we were connecting on the eye roll. We are just closing up Advent right now. Merry Christmas, everybody. I feel like we can say that. It's right around the corner, and I know a lot of you may not even be with us on Christmas Eve because people are traveling and out of town, and do we have some people here tonight that are actually from out of town? Because I know my parents are here from Colorado tonight. Whoop, whoop. And Matt, I think you had some family here. Are they here? From yeah, Chicago. <laughs> you don't have to stand. But hey, welcome to the table. We're glad you're with us tonight. We are in a series that we've been calling Low. It's out of Jan John Pavlovitz's Advent devotional. And we've been talking about the gospel story from a ground level view and really feeling like when we get into the realness of the story that Jesus meets us there and we get this bigger, more beautiful picture of God and, and how God works in the world. You know, um, tonight we're talking about the birth of Jesus, that sweet, sweet story of his birth. At least I think that's the way we often paint it, don't we? This sweet and beautiful story, which there is that aspect to, but so often we don't get the fullness of that story, the nitty-gritty, the get-down-and-dirty of Jesus' birth. And I was thinking about this because I kicked off our series on December 1st, and I was talking about when the angel came to Mary and Mary's yes to carrying the Son of God. And I showed a few pictures. I threw up a few pictures. Patty, you want to throw up the first one of my daughter, Annie? I threw that up and was like, hey, look at how cute she is. She's going to have a baby. Doesn't that look like fun? And then the next picture was, oh my gosh, it was great. It was so awesome. And as I was thinking about what I talked about, I realized. I, too, just like I think we do with this birth narrative, I didn't really give you the full picture of that birth. There's another picture. Oh, go back, Patty, one more, the other one. This one. So this gives a little more of the picture. One of the things Annie had asked the doctor was, hey, when that baby is delivered, can Jake tell the room what? What? <laughs> I asked permission. Can Jake, can Jake tell the room what the baby's sex is? Because they didn't find out ahead of time. And so right there, Jake is looking, and the nurse is saying, okay, Jake, what is it? And he's looking, and he looks up, and he goes, a boy? And the nurse so kindly goes, try again. And that gives you a little fuller picture of that beautiful birth, doesn't it? But that picture Patty showed before. Patty, can you flip that back? There's baby Sam right after she was delivered and she's crying and I think it gives us a little bit more of a picture of the reality of that birth because what I didn't talk about and what we all know, those who have had births or been part of them in some way, is that there is sweetness and joy and there's sweat and bodily fluids and tears and pain in a reality that isn't a bad thing. It just makes it more beautiful. It makes Sammy's birth more full and rich and meaningful. It gives us the whole story. But I think we are people who like to be comfortable, right? Because when we're comfortable, there's no uncertainty. There's no stretching involved. There's no internal conflict that we're wrestling with. And sometimes, I know for me, I'm just tired. I kind of want easy. Sometimes comfortable feels really nice. 
So it is that often our Christmas story becomes a sweet story and the centerpiece of, of family and family love. And yes, that's true. That is a beautiful part of Christmas. But lost, I think, are the incarnation. The incarnation, the word became flesh, God with us. But lost are the incarnation's most critical elements. The context of oppression, the harsh conditions that Mary and Joseph faced, the callous greeting that they got from the inn. We sanitize it. It makes it easier for us. But as told by Luke and Matthew, the birth story of Jesus isn't a sweet story. It is God intervening in human depravity and sorrow. It is hope to the hopeless. It is light to those walking in dark. Jesus was God's answer to Caesar and Herod and all the religious affiliates. But it's when we are willing to get low, when we're willing to get uncomfortable, when we're willing to look at the whole picture, that we get to see not just the fullness of the story, but the nature of the God that we're following. And that's what we're celebrating. That's worth celebrating. So we're in Luke chapter 2 tonight, and a little bit of the context is Luke opens with a reminder that Caesar is in control. Caesar is the sole proprietor of all this land, all these countries that he has conquered, and he owns the world. And he issues an order that everybody in this world, which spans from present-day Spain to east of Palestine to south of Egypt and current-day Libya, that everybody who lives in that area needs to register. That means you need to put your name on a list so that you can be accounted for, and it's typically used for paying taxes. So Joseph and Mary, they head to Joseph's ancestral town, Bethlehem, to register. And Jesus, like King David, will be born in Bethlehem. Jesus will be born in the city that the prophet Micah, back in the Hebrew Bible, described as this. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. And once again, God chooses, in this narrative, the smaller and less powerful than the places of status and prestige. So they arrive and the time comes, and here we are in Luke chapter 2, verses 7 through 18. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, 
Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. This is the third time in the opening chapters of Luke that we hear from and meet this angel. First, this angel speaks to Gabriel, or Gabriel speaks to Zechariah, and he's telling Zechariah he's going to give him a son, and he makes good on that promise. And then the angel comes to Mary and promises her a son, and we see that happen right now. Jesus is born, and on that same night that Mary's baby, Mary's baby boy is born, the angel goes to the shepherds. And we can, as the reader, be certain that when this angel speaks, he makes good on his word. He means what he says, and he says what he means. And this third visit, it's similar, right? It's similar in that the people that this angel showed up to, they were afraid. But what makes this different is that the messenger appears, and the Lord's glory shines around the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord, it's a phrase that was used often in Hebrew scripture that referred to God's presence and God's strength. But there's a detail in this story that is so familiar to us that I think we often overlook it. And we know it by heart. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Wrapped swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. The babe, lying in a manger. If it weren't so familiar to us, I think this like thrice told manger would be startling. We've heard all these lofty words about the birth of Jesus in Luke's story for over a year. Gabriel's words to the priest Zechariah and then to Mary, and then Elizabeth's words, and then Mary's words, and then Zechariah's words, and finally the angel speaks again to the shepherds, the shepherds in the field. And each time this message kind of floats out there that's couched in all these abstract nouns, right? Things like joy and good news and kingdom and son of God and savior and mercy and forgiveness and peace and Messiah. the message, it lands with a reality check. Because after proclaiming this good news of joy, a new savior, a messiah, the angel gets real. And dropping this abstract, he instructs these very puzzled shepherds to seek one of the many swaddled newborns. But this one's different. Because this one is lying in a feeding trough. Wow, like salvation is this really great, beautiful vision. But reality can be sort of uncertain and rough and even a little unsanitary. And I don't think we often think about the incarnation in this light. But the truth is, is that the incarnation is a picture of the gospel. And what that means for us is that it matters. It matters how and where Jesus was born. Because I think part of our call is to be imitators of the incarnation. 
So three times in this passage that we just read, we saw this phrase. Luke 2.7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And then again in Luke 2.12. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then in Luke 2.16, they went with haste and found Mary, Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. And the angel said to the shepherds, this will be a sign to you, an identification sign. And yes, this is how you'll know who and where the babe is that you're looking for. But this is far more than identifying the object of their search. Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a major. This also identifies us for us what kind of living God is living among us. And somewhere along the line, I think that we've lost this reality or we've forgotten it or we need to be reminded of it. But the lost reality is this, that the incarnation is embodied love versus loveless power. And we know this, right? But do we really let it sink in that our God came to earth poor and naked, vulnerable? And when God came to earth, it wasn't pretty and it wasn't easy. And I imagine the birth was a little chaotic and a little messy. But our creator God came to us, lying bound, helpless, weak, in straw. Emptied himself and he allowed himself to become vulnerable and humble. And what the incarnation does is it challenges us. It challenges us to acknowledge the values and the standards of Jesus. And the important thing is that it asserts to us that love, that it's love that's stronger than force. This is the kind of kingdom and throne that's signified by a baby that's laying in a trowel. And it means something. It matters to our story. I think one of the interesting things when we continue to grow and evolve and live out our faith is we often, and rightly so to a degree, we hold up Christ on the cross, right? When we think about our mission, we talk a lot about Christ on the, on the cross. But again, I don't think that's the full picture. It's not our full call. That I think we often forget about Christ the incarnation when we think about our mission on earth. That great commission, Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the other one we commonly refer to is Mark, Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And so we do that, right? This emphasis really on preaching the gospel, on securing converts. But John has a great commission too. And one that I think we just don't look at as often as we should. In John 20, 21, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, 
Even so, I'm sending you. The sent one now becomes the sender, commissioning his followers to be his messengers, his representatives. And what I love about John's version is that it's the only version that explains the command to go. And it gives us a model for the actual going. Because we are to go in humility, not triumph. In weakness, not power. In love, not dominance. We are sent into the world just as Jesus was sent into the world by God. And if we are to be imitators of the incarnation in the way that we practice the ways of Jesus, we also need to know, we can be assured actually, that we will be countercultural people. 2,000 years ago, claiming Jesus as Lord was dangerous. It was a political act. Because if Jesus was Lord, that meant Caesar was not. And so today, if we claim Jesus as Lord, that means a lot of things in our culture today, in our country today, in this world today. That means that we stand against political systems, against culture, against leadership that targets the marginalized and the vulnerable. It means that in all things we stand with and for who Jesus stands with. That means that we reject the culture of white nationalism, of racism, of homophobia, misogyny, xenophobia. This is a serious part of our call. And it starts with the incarnation of God. Luke presented to us a king, a king that would be bring peace for all people, a peace that would be inclusive, not exclusive. And Jesus' birth teaches us that God does not distance God's self from those that are suffering, those that are powerless, those that are poor. And likewise today, the nativity of Jesus teaches us that we can't distance ourselves from those on the fringe, from those that don't have a voice, from those that are marginalized. So bringing good news to those in our community that are hurting and suffering and oppressed, it begins with standing with them. Declaring the good news starts with challenging systems, challenging systematic sin that prevents the disadvantaged from improving their lot. It's a call that means action and a call for us to take seriously. John Pavlovitz in his devotional has this to say about the birth of Jesus and what the shepherds experienced. Good news, great joy, all people. Those are the unbelievable claims of the angels to the shepherds about, one coming about what one coming child will bring them. 
It sounds like a pretty lofty list of features for one nondescript baby born in a feeding trough to make good on. And the shepherds would have been justified in making a hard pass. Perhaps the fact that they witnessed this spectacular sales pitch at night explains their immediate enthusiasm. The shepherds were all in. And 2,000 years later, being people who are trying to imitate the incarnation, practicing the ways of Jesus in the here and now, I think one of the things we have to own is that the people of Jesus have not always been good news or great joy for all people. Pavlet says this, and I thought this was interesting. We have to decide if those failures, are they over-promises on the angel's part? Or are they user error on our part? Because maybe it's in this season that we can honor this story that we celebrate by being willing to be a little uncomfortable, to push past the weariness, to be willing to get low, to get real, to ask ourselves the question individually and as a community of Jesus followers, what needs to happen? What needs to happen for us to make good on the promises made by the angel? Because when we do that, we get to bring news that is good. We get to bring great joy to all people on our path. I was telling Matt, it was funny, ironic really, that here I'm preaching this sermon and the part I was struggling with is I feel like so often we want to just walk out of church and feel awesome and great and filled with joy, but that isn't the real story. And so I felt called to preach on this. But I want you guys to know that this is actually good news. When we see the fullness, we see the beauty of the story. We see how much it matters. And here's the good news. He came. He came to make things right. He came. We're called. And that's the hope. That's a beautiful thing that we get to be a part of. Because the reality of Jesus' birth may not be so sweet. But gosh, the reality of it, I feel like it should bring us to our knees as we celebrate. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we come before you, Lord. And we are filled with so many things. We are filled with just amazement as to how you came to this earth in the form of a vulnerable baby boy. And God, what you showed us about what it means to meet people where they're at, to stand with one another, to stand with our brothers and sisters as we move forward in this walk of faith, God. We are grateful, Lord, that you are the hope for the hopeless. You are light in the darkness, that you are the bringer of good news and joy. Help us through the work of your spirit, God, to be with you on that mission and to do the hard work of being honest and to love each other well. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Debbie.
I remember reading a scholar last year around this time who was talking about Jesus pre-Jerusalem. And the scholar said that had Jesus just stayed out in the sticks and opened the eyes of the blind and fed the hungry, walked on water, changed water into wine, the Romans wouldn't have had much beef with that. That would have all fallen in line with the Roman pacification program. But instead, Jesus chose to be faithful to love, and love often leads you where love isn't allowed. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem, arms open wide, no bubble wrap around him, and it costs him his life. We remember that calling, we remember that, the coming of Christ. And we remember how on the night before Jesus was killed, before that life was lost, Jesus sat with a group of people, which is amazing in and of itself when you think about what Debbie just said, that there was still a group of people that said yes to this unbearable burden that would come to such a beautiful blessing, a group of people who were more committed to the power of love, and they were not into loveless power. It's those people who were together around this table, and instead of sugarcoating anything, Jesus puts the death at the center and he lifts up the piece of bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. Whenever you come together again, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup and he filled it with wine and he lifted it in the air and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. When you come together, you people who have been called out to take this on, drink this in remember of me, remembrance of me. And so we do. Here at the table, um, when you feel ready, if you feel ready, we will have people right here, here, and here. Gluten-free elements will be in the middle, and you will come up, take a piece of bread, and dip it in the wine, and take in the good news of Jesus' incarnation. Prior to doing that, though, we do stand, and we say the Lord's Prayer together. So will you please stand with me? Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.